Lord, as we prepare for your word this morning, may our souls continue to bless you. Would you open our hearts to what you have to say to us? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. We're continuing in our study of Nehemiah this morning. Some of you have been with us uh, weekly throughout the summer. Some of you have been in and out. Maybe it's your first time with us. We're glad to have you here. We're going through this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We've already covered a lot of ground uh, in just five weeks as we have viewed Nehemiah's effort to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's really the theme of this story. The whole point of this series for us and why we're studying Nehemiah right now is to glean biblical lessons on his rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem as we survey all that needs to be rebuilt in our lives, in our church, in the church, and in our society, in our culture. We want to do that faithfully, like Nehemiah did. And so we're turning to him for lessons. We've seen the ways already in which he was inspired to give his plans over to God before doing anything. The, the opportunities he took to, to rebuild the walls of the city through godly character. We've seen the ways in which the community in Jerusalem captured the vision for rebuilding the wall and executed that task in such a faithful way. And then last week, Simon led us on how Nehemiah dealt with discouragement, external discouragement from the outside that was seeking to undo all this good work. People who were trying to thwart his efforts. So our search for biblical lessons for rebuilders leads us to chapter 5 this morning, chapter 5 of Nehemiah. So last week was external threats. This week we're actually looking at internal threats and discouragements. Threats that caused caused Nehemiah to have to pause the construction of the walls and could unravel all of his good work if he doesn't deal with it well. So as we've done in this series, I'm actually going to read the whole chapter for you. It's a little bit long. There are Red Pew Bibles if you want to follow along, if that's going to help you listen well. Maybe you brought your own Bible. You can turn to Nehemiah 5. If you're confident that you can listen to this entire chapter and not uh, doze off or anything like that, you can feel free to just close your eyes and listen. I'm going to invite you to stand again if you're able. Maybe that will help you not to doze off if you're standing. That's good. Um, Nehemiah chapter 5, and I want you to really listen well to this narrative and the lessons that are in it. Hear God's word this morning. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, we must get grain so that we might eat and stay alive. And there were also those who said, we're having to pledge our fields and our vineyards and our houses in order to get grain during this famine. And then there were others who said, We are having to borrow money on our fields and our vineyards to pay the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children, and yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless, and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. This is Nehemiah saying, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're all taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them and said to them, as far as we are able, 
we have bought back our Jewish kindred who have been sold to other nations, but now you're selling your own kin. Who must then be bought back to by us? The nobles were silent and couldn't find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. You should, not walk, should you not walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop taking interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them take an oath to do, uh, to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and I said, so may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. As the people did, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years total, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took wine and food from them, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Instead, Indeed, I have devoted myself to the work on this wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations around us. Now, that which was prepared for one day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, fowls were prepared for me, and every ten days, skins of wine in abundance. Yet with all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So last week, external threats. They were bad in chapter 4. And here we have internal threats in chapter 5. And I think these internal threats are even more dangerous. What's the nature of this internal threat? Well, you heard it in this passage. Inequity. Inequality, exploitation, lack of care, lack of justice. And this is not external stuff. This is among the people of God who are supposed to be operating as a family together. So here's the situation. And you can actually read this through the people crying. There's three distinct uh, cries that we hear from the people for three different reasons. The first is in verse 1. We learn that Jews who didn't own land, landless Jews, didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough food. These were people who worked hard on the construction of the wall, but they were now in a crisis. Most of them had already left their normal professions to volunteer for the work that Nehemiah had called them to do on the wall. They're not landowners. They live at subsistence levels, and the sacrifices that they have made to help build this wall are now becoming detrimental for them and their families. So as we read about in chapter 4, because of the external threat of, of, of Sanballat, this, this guy who's trying to undo the construction of the wall, the men of the community were actually asked to guard the wall 24-7. As they're working on it, they also need to guard it. No breaks. And they were leaving their wives at home to deal with hungry children. So their complaint is against their, their fellow Judeans 
who are apparently unwilling to share food and to help them in their time of need. So that's the first cry. The landless Jews, they didn't have enough food. The second cry is in verse 3. We see the landowners having to mortgage their properties to buy food. There was a famine in the land, and so money was tight for farmers, and many of them had borrowed money for seed, for the, for the paying of hired hands, and to work the harvest. So their creditors now came calling upon these debts with interest. But since these people were already working on the wall, there was a shortage in the workforce, and it put the whole agricultural system in danger. And the farmers, just like the people who didn't own any land, they were hungry. They weren't able to feed their family sufficiently. And then the third cry comes in verses 4 and 5. There's a third group, maybe it's a combination of both groups, that were concerned about taxes that were being levied by the Persian king, Artaxerxes. The taxes were actually so excessive that landowners had to borrow money just to pay the taxes, but now they can't pay off their loans. And as a last resort, they, are, they have to subject their children to slavery to help pay off those loans. There's nothing else to be done. And these loans, a lot of people, a lot of scholars look at this and they think that the interest was somewhere between 20 and 50%, if you can imagine. They can't redeem their children from slavery because they have no more assets. And even worse, we read that their daughters are taken by creditors and are being prostituted as payments for outstanding loans. I hope you can see this is a huge problem, right? This is a huge problem amongst the people of God. Yes, the wall is there, and the wall, the whole intention of building the wall was to legitimize the city of Jerusalem to protect God's people so that they could worship Yahweh God in freedom and flourish and live into the shalom that God called them to. But what is the point of an awesome wall that's protecting you from external threats if you're a mess on the inside? What's the point? What's the point if, if the state of the people of God within that safety of those walls is disarray and hunger and resentment and inequity and injustice and exploitation and slavery and prostitution and desperation? Why? The walls don't matter at all. Who cares about keeping enemies out when we have enemies fighting within? So that's the situation in Nehemiah chapter 5. And Nehemiah is this guy who has administered and led so brilliantly so far in our study of this book. How is he going to respond to this? How is he going to deal with this problem? Well, for the three cries of the people, Nehemiah actually has three responses as well. And this is where I really want to invite you to enter this text more fully, personally, for you. I'm going to walk through Nehemiah's responses in the form of three questions that we can ask ourselves. And as always... I put these questions before you because I am asking them first before I'm asking you to ask them of yourself because I need them this morning as well as I read this text. So the first question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I responding appropriately to the needs, inequities, and injustices around me? Am I responding appropriately? We read in verses 6 and 7 that Nehemiah hears these complaints, and what does he do? He gets angry. He says, I was angered. And then he takes a little time to think over that anger and, and that emotion. And then he gathers the nobles, the people who are doing this unjust thing, and he, and he, and he brings these acquisition, acquisitions to them, accusations to them directly and clearly. So when we survey the needs of the people around us, the needs of our communities, the needs of our city, 
how are we responding? I'm going to be honest with you and say that I know what my knee-jerk responses are to these kinds of things. I hope I'm not the only one. If I am, that's okay. But my first response is to go like this. Anybody have that response? I don't want to hear the needs. I don't want to see them. I don't want to be confronted with them because if I am, it's going to cost me something. I'm going to have to do something. Or to my shame, another response is to try and rationalize those needs of other people away. You're just whining. Why don't you help yourself? You need to solve your own problems. That's not my problem. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Or even, I hear you. I'm concerned. I just can't help right now. I just can't really do anything about that right now. But Nehemiah does not have any of these as his knee-jerk response, right? Instead, he sees the need, he listens well, and he feels that need. He feels it. True concern for other people, especially those who are marginalized, should move us emotionally. Whether it's towards compassion or anger or sadness. I want you to notice that Nehemiah owns the fact that he's angry. That's okay. But he does not allow himself to stay in anger. He collects his thoughts so that he doesn't act out of anger, which is ultimately an unproductive exercise. And he moves to action. When we're faced in our lives with the realities of injustice, brokenness, exploitation, things that are clearly wrong and messed up and fall well short of, of God's design for his people, are we responding appropriately, if at all? Are we feeling God-given emotions and then allowing those emotions to move us to action? If we're not doing that, then we're not seeing the needs, we're not in an emotionally healthy place, and we're not mature enough to really do anything productive about it. So that's where it starts. Am I responding? Am I emotionally responding to the needs that I see? Second question from Nehemiah's response is knowing those needs, the inequities, the injustices around me, will I choose obedience to God and then act? So Nehemiah has a choice. He's heard these complaints. He's felt the emotions that he's feeling. Will I dismiss them or am I going to act on them? And he chooses to act. He's in a position of power, of leadership to be able to do so. So he speaks to the nobles. He tells them that they need to stop taking interest from these poor people, especially the fact that they are, these are your own people, right? He appeals to the work that's been done for decades to, to bring the people of God, the Jewish people, out of exile and bondage back to the holy city. And he says, basically, you brought them to the city, and now you're doing the exact same thing. You're putting shackles back on them, your own brothers and sisters. He calls them to reverse the inequity and injustice there and then, and amazingly, they do so. <laughs> the appeal works, and these nobles, they restore lands and, and interest paid, and the assembly rejoices and praises God together. Those who were at odds, who were exploiting and being exploited, in just a few short verses, they end up praising God together, restored and reconciled. I, I think this is an incredible example of what it looks like to seek restorative and reconciling justice in our world. Now, does it always work out that way? No. I mean, it seems pretty easy, right? It happened pretty fast here. But especially when we talk about the injustices or inequities in, in the body of Christ, this is what should we at least should be striving for, this end result. We should be working towards reconciliation and restoration as directly and fervently as possible. And this is a matter of obedience. I chose that word very carefully this morning, obedience. If Nehemiah, in the position of power that he was in, 
had allowed these practices to just continue under his leadership, then he would have been disobedient to God, the God who seeks justice and reconciliation and restoration. So if God, in his wisdom, gives us eyes to see a need, and we know that we can do something about it, even if it's a very small thing, and we don't do it, I'm concerned that we're slipping into disobedience. Now, this doesn't mean that you are a disobedient person if you don't solve problems like homelessness or gun violence or food insecurity. Those are huge issues that it's going to take a lot of people coming together to help. But if God gives you a heart and a vision to see some of those needs and gives you the emotions to accompany what you're seeing and a clear mind to say, hey, there's something I can do here, and then we choose to walk away from that, that's a tragic choice. We should be striving for obedience for the end result that we see here in Nehemiah 5 of the people being reconciled and praising together. Third question, and this is a big one. Do I fear God enough to practice what I'm preaching? So in order to be a rebuilder like Nehemiah, we have to be people of integrity. Where do we see this in Nehemiah's story? It's in those last five verses, 14 through 19. Nehemiah describes how he refused to take part in the exploitation of his own people. So Nehemiah is, has been appointed as the governor of Judah, and, and, and in that role, he was actually entitled to receive a food allowance from his own people, the Jews, for the lofty position of leadership that he was in. So Nehemiah essentially was a conduit of taxation for Persia, right? So the people would give taxes through Nehemiah, they would end up with the Persian king Artaxerxes. And it was totally customary for leaders to take a portion of those taxes that were given, whether it be money or grain or meat, and keep them for themselves. But Nehemiah, above reproach, doesn't do this. Instead, what does the text tell us? I don't know if you picked up on this. He said, instead, what did I do? I fed 150 workers of, on the wall at my own table. Now, that's a big table. I think he's just saying he fed 150 people out of his own pocket. So because of the prevailing poverty, the famine in the land, neither Nehemiah nor his household took their rightful salaries from the people for the 12 years of his governorship as he notes, every single former Persian governor has done, but he doesn't do that. Nehemiah was someone who practiced what he preached. This is so often where God's people surrender our credibility. We speak about inequity and justice, but then we perpetuate it in our actions. We're never going to be perfect in this regard. I doubt that Nehemiah was either. But if we tell other people what to do and then we go and do the exact thing we're telling them not to do, we're not living with integrity, which is a real problem. Verse 15, Nehemiah actually tells us why he was motivated in this way. Why? Because he feared the Lord. He feared the Lord. Nehemiah wanted to be obedient to God, but he also had this thing in his mind, I think, where he feared before standing before God someday at the end of his life and saying, yeah, I, I went and I told the nobles that they needed to, to, to give the interest back and give the land back, but, you know, the whole time I was skimming my part off the top. He doesn't want to have to stand before a holy and righteous God 
and say that. Now, when we talk about fear of the Lord, this deserves its own sermon series, but we're not talking about cowering in a corner. We're not talking about being uh, fearful to even be in God's presence or to running away because we're scared, but rather having a right view of God as holy and mighty and righteous, a correct assessment of the weight of who God is and his glory. Nehemiah feared God, and that motivated him to live with integrity. Back in 1994, there was a very famous television evangelist who was in prison. His name was Jim Baker. Jim Baker had the largest Christian television network in the world. Uh, He was a ubiquitous televangelist. If you flip the channels long enough uh, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, you could find him. But uh, as uh, many stories that we've heard, he got caught up in fraud, got caught up in adultery. Ultimately, the government prosecuted him for mail fraud that he had committed, and he was thrown into jail for five years. Uh, He was visited while in prison by uh, Christian author John Beveray, and Beveray asked him this question. He said, Jimmy, you preached the gospel of Jesus from, from your pulpit, from the TV for years, but now you're in prison for doing many of the things that you told the people of God they shouldn't do. I have to ask, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? When did you stop loving Jesus? And Jim Baker replied, oh, I never stopped loving Jesus. I could never. I love Jesus. I still do. My problem was that I stopped fearing God. Are we willing to practice what we preach? If we're going to hold others accountable to a standard of fairness, of justice, of equity, do we fear God enough to do the same in our own lives? Are we willing to sacrifice? Are we willing to say no or to say yes, to change our lifestyle, open our table, go the extra mile? Are we willing to model compassion, restoration, justice for others rather than simply yell our demands at them? This is crucial for us as we think about being rebuilders in this season because if we want to have an impact for the kingdom of Christ on this earth, People must not only hear our message, but they must see it genuinely lived out in our lives. There is absolutely no place in the people of God for a mentality that's do as I say, not as I do. So how do we apply this to our lives here today? Maybe you have some ideas already. Let me give you an example from our community. This is a testimony from our own community. This is a photo um, here of our church van and it is packed with five economy-sized fans. Uh, Paul Brush, a member at our church. Many of you, if you've been around, you know Paul. If you don't, I'd be happy to connect you. He was here for the first service today. Uh, Paul actually delivered these fans to the Illinois River Correctional Facility this week. Um, Here's the story. Paul is a public school teacher um, uh, in Chicago Public Schools, and uh, many years ago, he had a student who ended up in prison at Illinois River Correctional Facility for uh, some, some really bad things that he had done. Um, and he had this experience of, of staying in relationship with this student and got to visit him and was pen pals with him. And through his relationship with this student, um, as he was caring for him with compassion, he heard about a need. He heard about a need. He heard a cry, right, from his friend. Um, and the cry is this, that in these warm summer months, the prison is horribly hot. If you can imagine 
these inmates, uh, most of them spend 23 hours a day in a six by nine cell. Lots of them are sharing that with another person. And they are essentially in these hot months, they're living in an oven. So Paul heard the cry of his former student and he got angry. <laughs> and I, I asked him this morning, I said, did you get angry? He's like, yeah, I definitely got angry. Um, these are inmates, right? They've done, they've done something wrong, but they don't need to live in this dangerous heat. It's not fair. It's not right. So he began to ask, what can I do to treat these inmates more fairly, more justly? So he went to someone in power. He went to the warden and he said, is there anything that we can do for these, for these men, for these inmates? And the warden said it would take 38 economy-sized fans, Granger fans, to cool the, the prison block down. 38 of them. So Paul got to work. With help from another church member, uh, they were able to, to negotiate a discounted cost uh, for these economy fans, $318 for one of these uh, economy fans. And today, 12 fans have been delivered uh, to the Illinois River Correctional Facility, which means we've got 26 fans yet to go. Um, and Paul came to get the church van this week um, and, and loaded up with those fans. And, and I asked him why he was doing this. I did not tell him what I was preaching about this week. I didn't walk through Nehemiah 5 with him. I said, uh, I said what, what motivates you to do this? And he thought for a second, and he said, for me, it's a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. In other words, he heard the cry of this student. He responded appropriately with the appropriate emotions. He addressed the problem in the ways that he could. He realized there was something that he could do, and then he modeled it in his own life. Notice that he didn't hire somebody else to do this. He didn't just write a check to do this. What did he do? He took a day. Uh, he's taken many days to, to fill these up, these heavy, van, these heavy fans, put them in the van, bring them down, drive uh, hours to go where he needs to go. He's, he, it's taken his own time and, and energy and money to get these fans to this facility. And also, he's not skimming any money for himself. He established the Elizabeth Fry Society of Illinois, named after the famous prison reformer in England, so that gifts can be given tax-free, and every single cent that's given goes directly to buying these fans. And he would say, if, that, if he didn't respond in this way and didn't do what he is doing, that he would have been disobedient to God. That's fear of the Lord. But because of his obedience... He's caring for some of the neediest among us, many of whom, by the way, are brothers in Christ, are brothers in Christ. So, you know, I, I tell you Paul's story, first of all, because I think it's an awesome story and it's good for us to give testimony. But if he were here today, you go, it's not really about just, you know, me and my story. It's, it's we want lots of these stories. We want lots of these stories in our church. This, these are the kinds of things we want our church to be about. So as, as you think about Paul's story, I want you to think of those three questions. What needs do I see around me? What needs have I heard? How has God sort of tapped on my heart and said, I'm emotionally connecting you to this need here? And am I, am I responding to that? Am I being obedient to how God is leading me? Do I fear a holy God enough to, to really live this out in my life and not just pass it off to somebody else or or live in hypocrisy. I, I'm quite confident that God 
every single one of you and students who are here, man, it's so great to see so many of you students. This is for you too. This is not just for the adults in the room. I'm confident that God is placing opportunities for, before you to care for the needs of others who are crying out, those who are marginalized, depressed, forgotten, lonely, sad. He's giving you an opportunity to say yes and to be obedient. I know we think of that word, and it can be a negative word for us, but what does being obedient to God allow us to do? Experience his presence in a fresh way because it ties us closer and closer to the giver of life. So if you would this morning, would you just close your eyes? Would you just close your eyes? Open your heart to God, and I want you to ask, God, are there needs around me that you are making me aware of? Am I responding to those needs with emotion? What emotions have you put in my heart? Are they the appropriate emotions for the needs that have been made known to me? And God, are you calling me to obedience? And Lord, if you're, if you're calling me to obedience and, and, and I'm committing myself to that, would you give me the strength to live a life of integrity where I'm practicing what I'm preaching? Lord, I, I ask that you might give visions to each and every person here of how we might live into that in our families and in our communities and our schools and our workplaces and our city and our world. Lord, it's our desire to be faithful and, and obedient to the call that you placed upon us. Lord, as we seek to rebuild, would you give us more and more testimonies of the way in which you're working in and through us? And might we do it just as humbly and with the kind of integrity that we see in your servant, Nehemiah. We pray. Amen. Paul's left this morning. I put his contact info here. I can get that to you as well. Maybe you hear his story and you go, I want to be a part of what the Elizabeth Fry Society of Illinois is doing. I know he would love to talk with you. And I'm quite confident that as soon as we've gotten enough fans for Illinois River, that he's going to turn his attention somewhere else too. Uh, keep that keep that ministry going for others as well. So feel free to, to reach out to him. He would love to talk with you. But maybe God's moving your heart in a different way as well. Maybe you go, oh man, just like, just like Paul was made aware of that need, like I have a need that I'm aware of and God is calling me to be obedient to that. We want to pray with you and, and walk you through that so that we can share that testimony here as well. We'd be happy to step aside from the pulpit and go, let's just share testimonies of how God is at work in our gift. But lastly, and I want to close with this. Thankfully, as we see this lesson for rebuilding, we can turn to Jesus. We've done that all the way through Nehemiah. We're going to continue to do it. It's almost at the end of every one of these lessons. It's like we, we see that Jesus is the exemplar of this. Paul, uh, sorry, not Paul, book of Hebrews, chapter 12, says this. Listen to this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus as the 
founder or author and perfecter of our faith. And then listen to this. For who the who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus is our model. If you are someone here today and you're like, I'm the marginalized one, I'm being taken advantage of, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I want you to know that you have a God who came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and continues with us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who sees you. He hears your need. He loves you. And he always responds appropriately. And he works on your behalf. Jesus is our model. It's going to continue to happen as we look through the book of Nehemiah. We absorb this lesson on rebuilding. We find we have the perfect model in Jesus Christ who sees the need, responds appropriately, confronts lovingly, and exemplifies integrity by always, every time, practicing what he preaches. This is how we deal with conflict. This is how we deal with inequities. This is how we deal with strife in our midst. And this is ultimately how we live as Jesus lived. And that's our goal, to live as Jesus lived. We want to rebuild this, this in a way where the church is more reflective of Jesus and we live as Jesus lived. May it be so. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.